The title of the piece, Fantasy Sonata, is itself a contradiction. Fantasy denoting a piece with a free form, rooted more in improvisation, where the imagination is permitted its invention. Sonata form, however, is a strict compositional structure that has three main sections, exposition, development, and recapitulation. It is no surprise that Ireland chose to express his unique amalgam of these two concepts in this way, being a student of both rigid Germanic musical forms and the freedom of expression found in Ravel, Debussy and Stravinsky. The opening phrase of the fantasy sonata is renowned for being one of the trickiest of any clarinet sonata. It starts on a top F and lies across the top break of the instrument, and yet its supple legato line calls for tremendous poise, control and nerve. Thurston was quoted as having remarked to Ireland, but why did you have to make it so difficult to play? Hello, and welcome to Exploring Masterworks with me, Stuart King. This episode continues my deep dive into the rich seam of works written in the first half of the 20th century for the celebrated clarinetist Frederick Thurston. Thurston was the preeminent figure in the UK in the years preceding, during, and shortly after the Second World War. He held principal positions in the newly formed BBC Symphony Orchestra and the Philharmonia Orchestra before embarking on a career in chamber music that was cut prematurely short by his untimely death in 1953, aged just 52. Today, I'm turning to the striking fantasy sonata by John Ireland, first performed by Thurston and Ireland in January 1944. John Ireland was the youngest of five children born to Alexander Ireland, a Scottish newspaper proprietor and publisher, and his second wife, Annie Nicholson. Ireland's father was 69 when John was born, and with all of his siblings grown up, his was a lonely, isolated childhood. Annie died when John was just 14 years old, with his father dying a year later, leaving him cast further adrift in his formative years. He gained a place at the Royal College of Music in 1893, the same year of his mother's passing, and he threw himself into his studies. Piano with Frederick Cliff, organ with Walter Parrott, and composition with the formidable Charles Villiers Stanford. It was from Stanford that Ireland inherited a thorough knowledge of the Germanic school, notably the music of Beethoven and Brahms. But as a young man, he was also strongly influenced by Debussy, Ravel, and the early works of Stravinsky and Bartok. From these influences, he developed his own signature English Impressionism, related more closely to French and Russian models than to the prevailing folk song style of English music of the time. This cosmopolitanism is very much in evidence in the fantasy sonata. In the early 1900s, Ireland began to make a name for himself. He won first prize for his violin sonata in 1909, and his second violin sonata catapulted into relative stardom upon receiving its premiere in 1917. It was probably the first and only occasion when a British composer was lifted from relative obscurity in a single night by a work cast in a chamber music medium, he wrote. The work was published immediately and sold out before it had even been processed at the printers. From 1923 until his retirement in 1947, Ireland taught composition at the Royal College of Music, where his pupils included Ernest Moran and the superstar-to-be Benjamin Britten. The fantasy sonata dates from the Second World War years and bears many hallmarks of the time. A blend of romantic nostalgia 
and brutally acerbic dissonance coupled with driving militaristic rhythms. Ireland began the sonata whilst living in the Channel Islands, one of his favourite places, but he was airlifted from Guernsey to Essex shortly before the German invasion in 1914. The work was completed between January and June 1943 and dedicated to Frederick Thurston, the greatest clarinetist of his generation. Ireland and Thurston gave the first performance in London at a series of concerts in 1944 and went on to give a live broadcast on the BBC after the war in 1948. Ireland clearly had a deep affinity with the clarinet. Unlike so many great composers before him, this was one of the last works, indeed the last major chamber work, that Ireland composed before he retired. He would most certainly have heard Richard Mühlfeldt playing the Brahms Quintet in London for the first time whilst he was a student at the Royal College of Music, and he himself wrote a trio for clarinet, cello and piano, modelled on Brahms's Opus 114 in 1912-1914. Like Brahms, Ireland was writing with a particular player in mind, and so it was that a generation of composers was enamoured of Thurston's playing. His untimely death robbing us of a longer-lasting legacy of British clarinet music. The key centre is E-flat, with a key signature of six flats, but as with the Howell Sonata, we embark using the Dorian mode on E-flat rather than the E-flat minor suggested by the key signature. This major minor pivoting, coupled with a use of chromaticism that was uniquely Ireland's own, are a hallmark of his later works, and the fantasy sonata in particular. Lyricism and deeply felt romantic expression are the energies at play from the start. The clarinet part entwined around and through the piano writing. At times, the clarinet seems to duet with itself, sinking into its lowest tones, only to soar again ecstatically through its clarion and altissimo registers. The passion bubbles up into impetuosity. In bar 17, both players are marked marcato with a rapidly descending semiquaver wave in B-flat Locrian mode. The opening theme is restated in the clarinet at bar 28, now a fourth lower, bringing the tonal centre to B flat. This ushers in a second theme more turbulent and oceanic than the first. There is much evidence of the influence of water in these wave-like shapes that ebb, flow, crash and heave beneath the swirling melody. Piano's ostinato in B flat aeolian mode represents the sea swell and the turbulent waters risk engulfing the clarinet's melodic line. The storm passes just in time, leaving eddying swirls in its wake.
Just before bar 16, Ireland introduces a new sound world through the magic of the Lydian mode with its raised fourth lending a calm, optimistic sheen on the second subject. The tonal centre now is A, with the Lydian mode coloured with occasional chromaticism. The piano now takes centre stage with a new folk-like theme, simple but with watery, impressionistic undercurrents. Here is Ireland's English Impressionism combination of the Lydian mode, which appears almost whole tone, and piano arabesques very redolent of the piano writing of Debussy and Ravel, with a melody that is Gaelic in flavour. The sea swell re-emerges and the piano climaxes, making way for the clarinet to sing this new theme, upper tone in B. The clarinet's arabesques are now coloured by pentatonic and whole tone scales, adding further to the watery, impressionistic colour wash. subsided sufficiently to warrant the marking tranquillo and the central slow section. Here the last eddies of the tempest are reduced to a gently undulating trickle of semiquavers flowing unceasingly between the hands of the pianist. The clarinet line is a halting fragment from the first theme that shifts through a succession of different tonal hues, sometimes attempting to soar upwards but never quite matching the heights of the opening.
Then there is a third theme, introduced in an even slower tempo again by the piano, this time in B Aeolian mode. The clarinet takes over the melody and breathes renewed passion into it, rising again to sing in the same heightened register as with the opening theme. The pulse quickens and the glittering piano ostinato of sextuplets divided between the hands underpins a heroic clarinet motif that is a composite of material from the main themes. The shimmering piano intensifies and forms once more into the turbulent ocean wave figurations of earlier. This episode is briefer than before and gives way to a calmer lyrical section, again a blend of the principal themes woven between both clarinet and piano. The passion grows again in intensity with music that is by turns heroic, yearning and extrovert. The climactic point is reached when the clarinet soars up to a top B-flat right at the top of its altissimo range and plummets headlong in a fiery roller coaster scale through three and a half octaves to the final justo section. This is where the scars of wartime Britain are felt. There is a heavy, menacing, jack-booted march in the lowest depths of the piano's left hand. This is peppered with metallic staccato shudders and shrieks in the right hand. Marked fortissimo marcato with heavily chromatic cluster chords representing the clash of metal on metal, the piano is now mechanical, percussive in nature. 
Gone are the liquid arabesques and sea swells of the first half of the piece. Over this machine ostinato, the clarinet's attempts at soaring lyricism falter into cascading machine gun fire staccato figurations and clipped, heavily accented syncopations. clearly is not at ease in this soulless world of angry machines. He does not linger long here, permitting one inexorable crescendo, spanning the clarinet's entire range that climaxes with a terrifying wail and incendiary flare arcing into the heavens to finish the sonata back in E-flat. It seems to me this brief assault on the otherwise lyrical passions of the sonata mirrors the times when it was written. Ireland's carefree island life on Guernsey brought to an abrupt and terrifying end with the sudden evacuation in the face of German invasion and occupation. The war was still raging when he completed the fantasy sonata, but it is an ode to a Britain that was fast disappearing, a nostalgic trip down memory lane and of happier times gone by. Ireland never married, and some commentators have suggested this piece was based on the Satyricon by Petronius, with its vivid depictions of the Greek love possible between men, uncensored by society. Certainly, there is deep passion enshrined in this glorious work. Whether Ireland ever experienced the heat of such passion in his private life is doubtful. At least, the sad, lonely boy from Cheshire found a way to express his ardour in the intertwined parts of his fantasy sonata, arguably his finest achievement in chamber music. So thank you much for joining me on this um, exploration. As always, there will be a YouTube to accompany this, which will look at the score in a little bit more detail and talk about some of the things that um, I mentioned during the podcast. For details of this, please go to my website, www.stuart-king.com and go to the podcast page um, where you can find links through to the YouTube and all the other episodes in this particular series. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning, this is a little mini-series within a series that's looking at the British works in the first half of the 20th century primarily. Um, there were so many wonderful works that stemmed from this time with clarinetists such as Frederick Thurston, so I'm hoping to continue this um, little series with more wonderful masterworks from the British composers. Thanks for joining me and until next time, take care and keep enjoying the music. <laughs>